you know, I'm working hard on transactions as a young 30-something associate at uh, a large firm in Leeds. And I get a call uh, in the middle of the day from Maggie to say, can you find yourself uh, a meeting room? I've got something to tell you. So I took myself into a meeting room, took the call from Maggie, and she said, I've received a reply to the letter. I'll read it to you. And the, le- and the reply said, dear Maggie, thank you for your letter. Please do not contact me again. Welcome to the Climb Podcast, where wisdom flows from one generation to the next. In today's fast-paced world, we rarely pause to contemplate the intricacies that fuel success. Sit back, unwind, and immerse yourself in the art of storytelling, an age-old tradition that connects us through raw, authentic conversations. No topic is off-limits as we delve into the pivotal crossroads and defining moments that shape today's leader. The ascent is never easy, Welcome to The Climb. Philip, welcome to The Climb. Really excited to have you here. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was with our client TTI and our good common friend, John Archer, over in London. And we were told we were going to meet an extraordinary human being, someone that John Archer has a lot of faith and trust in, which As you know, that doesn't come easily with John. He's an incredible human being. And once you get to know him, you feel like you've met a best friend, a confidant in life, somebody that, you know, is always going to shoot you straight. And so when he said, you've got to meet this guy, Philip, he's going to join us at, I believe it was Wilton's. I was immediately curious who this person was going to be. And in walks this tall Brit with a perfect British accent. And I'm thinking, I'm going to like this guy. And It was just one of those dinners in your profession, which we'll get to, you know this, we go to a lot of dinners, but it was one that was just incredibly impactful. And I thought, you know, once again, through John and his connections, I'm meeting somebody that in all likelihood, I'll probably be in contact for, you know, the rest of my professional life, if not whole life. So I think at that moment, a pretty unique friendship started and we got to know you better. You came over here and joined us in Fort Worth for a big dinner with a bunch of people from around the world. I think we even had some Australians there. And you and I continue to stay in contact. And so fast forward to this summer when we're back over in London again, and we're sitting down and having another amazing dinner. You told us a story that I had gotten glimpse of over the time, but as somebody that has created this podcast, right, to capture really interesting stories and talk about defining moments in people's lives. In the 40 plus podcasts I've done up to this point, I don't know that any story has struck me more than yours. And so I'm incredibly honored that you would come on and tell it. This is going to be an amazing time together. But before we dive into that, let's just talk a little bit about Philip who you are, what you do, where you're from, what makes you tick, and then we'll we'll get into the brass tacks. So, Philip, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you so much for inviting me on the climb. It's, uh, it's a real privilege, particularly having seen the guests that you've, uh, you've had on your podcast. Until now, I feel like a little bit of imposter syndrome being invited on amidst this uh, 
plethora of CEOs, but it's a real delight. And as you say, a real pleasure that you and I met in over that great dinner initially through the fantastic John Archer, who uh, I agree is a, is a wonderful guy. So a bit about me. I'm a corporate lawyer. I specialize in UK domestic and cross-border merger and acquisitions. I'm a partner at Knights, which is a large UK law firm and professional services business. We have 26 offices around the UK, about 1,500 plus professionals, purely UK-based with no ambitions to plant flags around the world like many firms do. But I have a particular focus on the US, which is what brought you and I together and through TTI, which is one of um, our fantastic US corporate clients, the Berkshire Hathaway Company, as you know, which is uh, a real privilege to uh, advise TTI and Berkshire Hathaway in the UK, which we've done on a, a couple of occasions and continue to do so. So that's really where I am. And I, I was born and bred in Leeds, which is a city of approximately 800,000 people, about 200 miles north of London in the county of Yorkshire. It's a major legal and professional services city with a group of fabulous law firms and corporate finance businesses, which I've been part of the Yorkshire corporate finance community my entire career, which scarily enough is now approaching, not quite approaching 30 years. But so yes, I'm a Leeds and Yorkshire boy in London frequently with work and pleasure, particularly with my eldest son. I have two kids. My son, Ross, just turned 27. He works down and lives down in Battersea, in the south of the River Thames. My daughter, Mia, is 24, nearly 25, and she lives and works up here in Leeds. And I've been together with my wife, Jackie, for also approaching 30 years. We were together, we married in 94, having been childhood sweethearts. So that's me. Well, we could just hit stop right there. I think that's enough. I mean, but most people, you know, you, you should feel very honored to have two wonderful kids and a marriage of 30 years. And you can tell somebody that the history in Texas obviously doesn't go nearly as far back as the, the history in the UK. But those that have a pride for where they're from and a sense of centering when they talk about their hometown. And it, that resonates with me because Texans feel the same way. We're proud of where we're from. And so maybe talk two things that you said, I think let's dive into a little bit. One, I talk a lot about this on this podcast, which is that the environment that you grow up in should you choose to embrace it and really understand what it is, definitely has a, an impact on who you are and who you become. So I want to hear just how growing up in Leeds, several hundred miles north of London, sort of impacted you. And then interestingly enough, why is that such a micro center of legal expertise? How did that happen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So just starting with Leeds and the community, Leeds is a fabulous city full of great characters and very proud of it, proud of it being a, a major Yorkshire city. Yorkshire as a county, as the largest county in the UK, is almost, a, we, we like to call it God, God's own county. It's a, a land of rolling hills and, uh, and great, great cities and countryside. And it creates a sense of belonging in itself. And that's really um, something that all Yorkshiremen are very, very proud of. And um, we're also very big, not all of us, but me in particular, and my friendship group, big, big supporters of the local football team or soccer, as you guys call it, which is Leeds United, which also drives a sense of belonging and following, which is, uh, is fabulous to be part of. 
the community that I was brought up in is a small suburb north of Leeds called Old Woodley, which is a centre of the Jewish community, which I'll come on to because that's a very important part of my story. And that in itself is a very close community, very proud, close community and something that's been part of the Leeds landscape for many years and uh, embraced by the Leeds city. How and why Leeds became a centre for financial services is a good question. Certainly, one of the firms that I've worked with before joining Knights is a product of several mergers, and that firm was a blue-chip law firm called Simpson Curtis that I joined in 1993. And that firm is typical of many of the Leeds law firms that grew through merger when the big because there were so such excellent firms i'm not just saying it because i was uh, at that firm certainly there were there were two or three firms in leeds that were really preeminent of which simpson curtis was one and they grew and were both by merger and acquisition over the years into big national firms in fact you may have heard of a law firm dla that's um uh, that's actually originated in, in leeds uh, with the so, um, yeah, um, so it, for for some reason, because Leeds used to be an old textile, it was originally well known for its textiles and the rag trade, but it became better known for its financial services and legal sector and is now pretty a real powerhouse. Some fabulous law firms in Leeds, of which Knights is one. And so with your kids coming up later and, and maybe when you were coming up too, is is there a clear feeling that if your mind and your interest in your schooling is such that it it breeds the DNA and the the grit and the determination to do what you do, like, do people just think that they're going to become lawyers and go into these type of professions? Like, how prevalent is it now that there's 800,000 people there? It's not a natural destination just because people are born in, in this area. You know, we've got a fabulous university as well here in Leeds, and many of the students that come in to study law are attracted to stay in the city because obviously we all love our student student cities. So we get many, many students and law graduates stay in Leeds and Yorkshire because they've studied here. And equally, many of the young wannabe professionals that are born in Leeds will travel and, and end up in London law firms, Birmingham, Manchester. So I don't think there's a particular magnet for people to stay in the in the professional services in, in Leeds just because they were born here. But it certainly is a great, you know, if you are in that world and you want to qualify into professional services and, and the law and corporate finance and you want to stay in Leeds and Yorkshire, you're very lucky to be from Leeds because it's such a great choice and uh, such a thriving community. Interesting. So I'm going to throw some questions at you here and I'm doing this from a little bit of a selfish perspective. And what I mean by that is, as I've started traveling again to the UK for work, it's been this incredible renewed sense of connectivity to something that I've always been connected to. Because as I've shared with you, on my mother's side of the family, that's where we're all from. She was born in New York, but she spent the first 13 years of her life just south of London. My grandfather flew for the Royal Air Force, as I've shared with you, etc. And so as I'm meeting more people going over there, I'm feeling this renewed sense of connectivity to at least where half of my family is from, right? So from your perspective, and this is something we really dive into on the climb, I just want to get your insight into sort of how you see the current state of affairs in the United States. So we've got an election coming up. Kind of how do you view that process from where you sit and then certainly some of the challenges 
that we're facing right now with immigration. We've got the auto workers striking right now. We've got the Actors Guild striking right now. Just a lot, a lot of things that are occurring that have occurred in the past before. But from your perspective abroad, looking at the United States, like how do you guys view our current political state? Well, I'm in a very fortunate position of coming over to the U.S. three, four, sometimes more times a year. So I can experience it when I'm over there, you know, in the U.S., as well as watching from afar. And with the the first kind of the Trump campaign led to his presidency, just really, it was just fascinating to watch from afar and to experience. It was kind of soap opera-esque in watching the news, so much so that I would watch the U.S. channels over here just as for my interest and entertainment ahead of the UK news channels, because it was just so divisive, you know, seeing the difference between CNN and Fox and laughing. It wasn't kind of funny in a peculiar way, but the different way of reporting the same, the same events. But the divisiveness was something that I've just never you know, we have opposing parties over here in the UK, of course we do, you know, across the House of Commons, and I'm sure it's equally entertaining to watch those exchanges because that's often a very embarrassing for us Brits, but equally it's, it's very much part of our character and identity. But the divisiveness in US politics really, I noticed and continue to notice, divides families. And do correct me if my observations are wrong, but I, I see speak to people and understand that it divides families. When we first came over on vacation, we were in Lake Tahoe, uh, say first vacation after Trump became president, I was in a grocery store and I got to the checkout and they heard our accent. The guy behind the till heard my accent and said, can I just apologize for my president? He's not my, you know, and I was just a Brit on holiday or on vacation as he was there was this kind of deep sense of division within the country. So in terms of observation, that's the, the main observation, is the challenges you face in terms of how Donald Trump has, appears to cause such divisions, entrenched positions that we just don't get over here. And there are challenges, but you know, I, I hasten to add, I and my family, some colleagues that come with me regularly to the US just love coming to the US because politics aside, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say how welcoming, how friendly, how intelligent, uh, what great conversation, what the ease of referrals, you know, and we're we just going back to our mutual friend, John Archer, for example, just working with John and TTI and proactively, without any request, connecting me with his own network just because it's a joy. And it's not something typically people volunteer over here. We have, we have the kind of the British Reserve over here, which, you know, is a thing. You know, people don't want to be too friendly too soon and too open and too welcoming. And, the, you know, the, you do, unfortunately, whilst we have great waiters and waitresses over here, you know, the difference in customer service, predominantly, I guess, I may be being cynical, but I know that will, will be driven to a degree by your, you know, your tip economy, which is much more important over their expectations of tips. And, you know, and I know that will drive behaviours, but equally, there is a genuine, a genuineness, in my view, to the friendliness, openness, transparency, and willingness to connect people with that. So I wouldn't want you to be too down on your, on the appearance of your politics from afar, because it certainly doesn't taint the many positives, in my view, of your fabulous country. Now, you hit on so many great points. I mean, it, 
because, and this is one of the reasons that this podcast was put into creation, was at the onset of COVID and the 24-hour news cycle that for some reason we think is incredibly important. And having all of these different news stations and their views, and they quickly become political, it was just frustrating to not be able to really get line of sight into truth without watching all the news stations and then coming up with your own interpretation of what that means to you, what that means to your business, what that means to your family, etc. Because there is such a slant to it, depending on which channel you're watching. And if people only watch one channel and they only take one viewpoint, then to your excellent point earlier, it can be come very divisive, even inside your own family. I mean, I can remember conversations around the sacred fire pit that we have at our family ranch and not necessarily agreeing with some of my family members' views, but my viewpoint is always to listen, to learn. Maybe it does have an impact on the way I view, maybe it doesn't, but the important piece is that you listen and learn and respect the views of others, not try to manipulate them into a different view. Like, I don't think that's anybody's job. You can have an opinion, but you should be open and honest with everyone to listen. And that's kind of been the impetus of this podcast. Like, we're here to tell stories. We're here to get to the bottom of it, but without any preconceived judgment or direction, right? It's just, it's your story. And so pivoting into your story, I got bits and pieces of a background of uncertainty of curiosity. And then Philip, the word that I would use is just words I would use is just grit and determination to figure out where you came from, what happened, how it all came together. And to me, like you just define courage, because the easy thing would have been to to stop or to walk away or to give up and you didn't. And so going back to this incredibly intimate dinner that me, you, John, and my business partner, Charles DeVilder, were having, you started unfolding a story that I had heard parts of, but had never really heard it from beginning to end. And so if you're ready, if you're willing, start talking about this curiosity that was building up in you of who am I and how does my whole family come together? Sure. I should start by saying, as you know, Michael, it took me some time to get my head around doing this podcast and telling this story so publicly because it's a really um, personal, private story that I've only actually spoken about in detail in the last few months. And that's because it became kind of public in a very small way in my community because it, it had to become public. And um, I've got my head around it, and I'm, I'm owning the story, and I'm happy to tell it now. But it's kind of counter to my instinct to tell it. But I, I'm delighted to be invited to onto the show to tell the story. So I was born in, uh, on the 27th of September 1969. But I think it's fair to say my life began five weeks later when I was adopted by my mum and dad, Ruth and David. Ruth and David Goldsborough, my, my parents, were unable to have children. And being Jewish, as I touched on earlier, they wanted a naturally Jewish baby. They wanted to adopt a naturally Jewish baby, which you can imagine is a needle in a haystack kind of thing to find. And I've been, I have 
files of, of old letters to this day. My dear late mother, who passed away when I was nine, and again, I'll come back to that, Ruth, uh, writing to Jewish communities far and near, including overseas, asking local community leaders if, if there was a baby she could adopt. My paternal grandfather, uh, Dr. Charles Goldsboro, was a local, we call him general practitioner, GP, a local doctor. And um, he heard within his medical network that a 17-year-old Jewish girl had fallen pregnant and was unable to look after the child or be giving the child up for adoption. And whilst my adoption was completely legal, because I've seen the court papers, I'm sure there was some deal was done to reserve me, if you like. So um, when I was born, I was swiftly adopted by, by mum and dad. And we have no information about the girl in question other than a scrap of paper describing her characteristics and the characteristics of partner. My birth father was literally their kind of age, their education, their height and their interest. And that was it. Nothing about where they were from. But that was fine because I was, you know, as a baby, five weeks old, just the same as anyone else in terms of becoming conscious. I, I became conscious at the same age and stage everyone else did. And my mum and dad was my mum and dad. And I was privileged to be brought into a fabulous Goldsboro family. And I'm, you know, which... I absolutely love and adore. So I've been very, very fortunate. So I went through childhood knowing I was adopted. There was no, you know, I hear these horror stories of kids being told they're adopted in adolescent arguments. You're not ours anyway. You hear these horror stories. But, you know, the first book I remember was I Am Adopted. I don't know how old I was, but as soon as I could read, I actually remember the pictures and the pages. So it was never a surprise to me. I never felt any different to anybody else. It was all very natural, and mum and dad were mum and dad. And I had a wonderful childhood. Yeah. Do you remember about the age that you were where they had that conversation with you, where you know, if they have it with you at three, you don't really understand what that means. If they have you that conversation at five, maybe it has a little bit of an impact. But when did you philosophically understand that, you know, maybe compared to your friends, like your parents were not your birth parents, they were your adopted parents, but obviously had taken on that role very seriously. Like, do you remember that transition of knowledge where you kind of understood that concept? Given how I was literally, well, five weeks old is incredibly, incredibly soon after birth to be adopted. So it was, I never felt that they were not my parents. But it didn't come as a shot. I remember, like I said, the book was, funnily enough, called I Am Adopted. There's good. That's original. Uh, and it was, just a really, it was just a kid's book. You know, they must have looked very hard for it because I don't know how. Uh, it was just a kid's book with a couple of sentences on a page and just very, you know, and I, it was almost kind of might have been bedtime reading for a, a couple of nights. I don't know. But it, I don't remember, to answer your question, a particular time or shock if you like. It was just all very natural and nothing nothing was, certainly no trauma. It was just, and I don't think it was mentioned regularly, but it was never buried under the carpet. It was just something I knew, something as far as I know, many of my friends knew, because as I mentioned earlier, it's a very close, small community and everybody knows everybody. So it was a natural transition, if you like, rather than a, a day of being told. Yeah. And then... Um, Tragedy struck in 1979 when my mum passed away. That was uh, a huge shock to me because 
my father, in my, in my best interests, didn't want me to know how critically poorly mum was for over a number of months. And she was taken down to London for treatment. As I mentioned, we're 200 miles north and the, the treatment that she needed was in London. And I was just blissfully unaware. I kind of beat myself up these days still, thinking, why wasn't I more inquisitive? But, you know, again, I'll never forget the day when uh, I was staying at some friend, a friend's house because I guess mum was having treatment or mum was away. And dad came around in the morning and, and I'll never forget the conversation, which was along the lines of, you know, mum has been poorly over the recent months. And I said, yes, just thinking it was a just an illness. And she said, well, mum, mum died last night. And uh, for a nine-year-old to take that, it kind of, again, I don't talk about this very often either, but it kind of was so traumatic that it, it kind of wiped my memory of the next couple of years. Uh, honestly, if you ask me about school, if you ask me about my life, if you ask me what I did between age nine and 11, I, I just... I think I was in a daze. Um, I think Dad, who was still with us, by the way, is 85 and was a wonderful human being. I think he regrets the way he handled it. But at the time, he handled it in what he believed genuinely to be my best interest. And also, I understand my mum was keen to see me through her illness, but he didn't want me to see her in that, in that state either and against her. You know, so absolutely no resentment, of course. You know, Dad did what Dad did, but uh, that was tough. So that added to the, it was a wrinkle, more than a wrinkle in my in my childhood. But we carried on, Dad and I, just he and I. I remember kind of cooking him dinner and getting home before him and cooking dinner ready for him to, you know, he and I will watch TV together. And that, we were happily doing that, going on holiday together for three or four years until Dad met my now stepmom, Judith, who had brought with her my two stepbrothers, Adam and Mark, who were about five and seven at the time. And then Daniel, my half-brother through dad and Judy um, came along when I was about 12 years old. So it's been an interesting family tree. But that was my childhood. It was, you know, the fact that I was adopted was completely irrelevant to everybody, especially my family, because I was very much part of the family um, with my cousins and aunties and uncles. And we, had a, we had a great time. You know, to preempt a question I'm often asked, was there any yearning to find out who my birth parents were? And the, the clear answer to that is no, because I was just so content, so part of a family, whilst having the knowledge that I had that I wasn't perhaps, uh, you know, not the natural child of, of Ruth and David. I was their child and a Goldsboro, very much a Goldsboro. And I, I liken it to, I think it might have been one of the books that I was given as a kid. I likened it just simply to having two jigsaw pieces missing. If you imagine the silhouette of a, of a person, two tiny jigsaw pieces were missing, and that was me occasionally thinking over the years, I wonder, I wonder who, who made me. But it was just a wonder rather than a yearning, and that, and that remained the case for a while. And so, obviously, that reflection kicked in, right? You're a smart person. You're a curious person. You had parents that were incredibly upfront and thought it important for you to know that. But when did the curiosity turn to a determination to answer that question, who made me? Great question, because I remember, I remember exactly when it was. So, 
the older I got, I guess, you know, and I was in, I fast forward now through my formative years as a young corporate lawyer working really hard all hours uh, in a very busy practice. So I was very distracted by my career. And then my kids came along in, um, so Ross was born in 96 and Mia was born in 98. And that's very, very distracting in itself. But then be- becoming a parent obviously makes, you know, the, the bond that you have, as you know, Michael, is, is just wonderful. And, um, I started thinking when I became a parent increasingly, you know, who, particularly on the maternal side, who could carry a child and what circumstances, how bad must things be? What must the situation be to give that child up at birth? And that was growing slowly inside of me in my kind of mid to late 20s, but but nothing more than that. And then in my early 30s, this is where things get a bit kind of, if you've seen the film Sliding Doors, when we go one way or the other determines a whole change of life and change of perspective. But my story is a series of incredible coincidences and moments, uh, which, again, we'll never come on to. But I went to see a musical over in Manchester. Uh, It's also a big city in the north of England, close to us here in Leeds. I went to see a show called Miss Saigon, which you may have heard of. It's It's a West End Broadway musical with some really powerful themes, really powerful songs. And one of the many emotional themes in Miss Saigon, which is centered around a a GI who goes over to Vietnam and meets a lady and they have a child. Um, One of the really powerful themes in that show that I saw in the early 2000s was the connection between the mother, called Kim, and the child that she had with the GI. And there's a really powerful song in there. And I, I, I am um, quite a sentimental, emotional fella and uh, big kind of emotional musical numbers do do impact me. And this song did did have a great impact on me. And driving back over the Pennines, which are the hills that divide Leeds and Manchester, I just thought to myself, that connection that was articulated in that song between mother and child I've really got to find the story here because somebody gave me up. And what, you know, how and why? Who is she? Why did she choose to carry a child for nine months when clearly medical advances was, was enough to where she didn't have to do that? So there's obviously a deep gratitude as well to this person. And uh, so I started a bit of research to answer your question. That, that was the moment. I started a bit of research. I, as I mentioned, I had a file that my dad kept of all the papers that they were given, very limited papers from my adoption. Uh, one of them was a, a birth certificate, which was in um, it clearly it actually in a false name. So the mother gave a false name. She wanted to stay an, uh, highly anonymous. And um, the father, the box for the father in the birth certificate simply said unknown. So I went along to the local registry and said, can you give me any more information about this birth certificate? And they said, they went in the back, I remember, and they said, sorry, we can't. It was an adoption case. There's nothing we can, there's no information we have. And the mother's clearly given a false name. So there was really nowhere to go. But there was another piece of paper, a tiny piece of paper about, I would say, three inches by five inches that was a certificate from a an organization called the Beth Din, which is the a Jewish rabbinical authority in the UK. Um, I imagine it's, it's global, but it's called the Beth Din. And it was a certificate that I was naturally Jewish, stamped formally that this child was naturally Jewish and signed in, um, in ink with this stamp. And it, it just occurred to me one morning that that stamp could not have been given, that certificate could not have been issued without the Beth Din knowing that my mother 
was Jewish naturally because the, the Orthodox Jewish community recognizes Jewish people as being born from a naturally Jewish mother. So I picked up the phone one Sunday morning in my, I must have been 30, 31, and not expecting them to be open because it was a Sunday morning and a, a, an old chap answered the phone and I said, hi, I've got the certificate here, number 1234, just wondering if you can tell me anything about the, the mother of this child. And the guy said, oh yes, hang on a minute, put the phone down. And I'm not exaggerating, 10 seconds later, came back to the phone and said, yep, I've got the details of the mother here in front of me. And what did the I, what did I, the emotion feel like that ran over you at that time? Because clearly, if you're mapping this all out, like this is a turning point. This is a defining moment where some of your initiatives that had been met with dead ends, now you've got a, a path to pursue. If I was sitting on a chair, I would have fallen off it, put it that way. I was absolutely gobsmacked. This mysterious maternal figure in my imagination, this person that I'd thought about increasingly in my adult years, and particularly when I became a parent, who I thought, you know, we were told as a family that the, uh, the mother was from London. Uh, so I, I also remember South Africa. You know, this mysterious person, that somebody on the other end of the phone had this person's name. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And I also couldn't believe how easy it was because it was literally, as I say, 10 seconds from this kind of eureka thought that this certificate had to be given by somebody with knowledge. So I said, well, go on then, what's the name? And he said, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I can see on our file this is an adoption case. Unfortunately, Mr. Goldsby, you're going to have to speak with your local authority, the, the, your local council will have an adoption team. You'll have to have be interviewed by these people to make sure that you're capable and, of receiving this information and dealing with it. And when we receive notification from those people, we can send you the papers. So my wife, Jackie, and I, uh, I wrote to the, I found the relevant people in the Leeds local authority, was given a caseworker, fabulous lady called Maggie, who we met together and she just just we just had a couple of conversations with her. She wrote to the Jewish authority to say yes, this person is capable of receiving this information. And within a week, I had the lady's name, birth certificate, the marriage certificate of her parents, which proved that she was Jewish, in front of me in an envelope. And unbelievably, this person lived five minutes from my door. This person that I thought was somewhere in the world all my life was living five minutes away. And as I was coming to terms with that, again, I'll never forget this. My dad turned up on my doorstep and I said, Dad, and by the way, I had a little bit of sense of disloyalty throughout the process because, again, I loved my parents so much and my dad and I had been through so much together. I didn't want him to feel that I was being at all disloyal, having this kind of thought of, you know, wanting to find out. And I just sat him down and I explained to him what I'd done and what I found out. And he said, I'm so happy, you know, I've always wanted you to find out, but it was for me because I want to thank you know, if you found this person, I wanted to thank this person for bringing you into my life. And uh, that was obviously emotional. And when I said who it was, he actually didn't know the person's name. But then he, he went home and then my stepmom, Judith, rang and said, oh, my God, I know this person. I remember her. I don't, didn't know her then, but she remembered her from uh, her childhood in Leeds and knew her married name because that was different from a birth certificate name, obviously. So we were able to trace her very, very easily. So the next step was, uh, did I want to meet her? And I, I, I got my head around meeting her and wanting to trace her and have the uh, 
this reunion, if that's the right word. So the lady I mentioned from the council, Maggie, acted as an intermediary and wrote a very carefully crafted letter to her home address, which was easy to establish, in case, of course, she had a family that didn't know anything about my existence, as was highly likely to be the case. And Maggie wrote this letter. I saw a copy of it saying, and I won't, I won't be naming this lady on this, uh, on this podcast to, to, to respect her continued sensitivity about this story. But she wrote to her and said, I'm working with someone that you met in 1969. I'd like to see you again. All very cloak and dagger. And I, um, and we just kind of, we lit the blue touch paper, the letter went and we just waited. And then um, in the meantime, you know, I'm working hard on transactions as a young 30-something associate at uh, a large firm in Leeds. And I get a call uh, in the middle of the day from Maggie to say, can you find yourself uh, a meeting room? I've got something to tell you. So I took myself into a meeting room, took the call from Maggie, and she said, I've received a reply to the letter. I'll read it to you. And the, le- and the reply said, dear Maggie, thank you for your letter. Please do not contact me again. So, Philip, let me let me just ask a couple of questions because these are some turning points. So, two things I'd like your reflection on. One, when your dad showed up at the doorstep, what if his direction, desire, message was, I don't want you to do this? Like, how would that have changed things? Without a shadow of a doubt, I'd have stopped. I'd have stopped because he is everything getting emotional there so my my he is everything so if he my curiosity about my existence is immaterial so yeah i wouldn't have i wouldn't have gone any further it was just it was an itch to scratch and a curiosity that i believe is a human right to know but my loyalty and love for dad would have stopped it right there i've never been asked that question michael thanks for asking it never never even thought about that it's clear to me, at least, outside looking in, that the amount of, of emotion you're showing right now and, and loyalty to him, he met, if not superseded, with him understanding you as a person, you as the man that you were then and were becoming and are now, that he didn't want to get in the way of that. He completely, like without hesitation, he said, you need to go do this. I think that's just incredible. He, he was delighted. He was delighted. Yeah. He was always, you know, it came out there and then has continued to come out now. And he still, he still wants to knock on this person's door who, you know, and we know, because as I say, the community is so tight, we know where she lives. We know who she is. But he, he won't knock on her door. He wants to knock on her door to thank her. That's something he won't do out of respect for me asking him not to and respect for her wishes because she has a family that, which I'll come on to, I have no idea I exist. So, yeah, I would have stopped in, in, in my tracks. But fortunately for me, he said, go for it. So you're sitting in this meeting room. Maggie, who wrote the letters, now reading you the response. Talk about what she was telling you and the, the emotions you were feeling. So the response was... Please do not contact me again. So I saw the handwriting of this person for the first time, uh, that which in a way in itself was a bizarre first connection of this person's existence. And it was really tough to take because, and I'll keep saying it, there was no yearning. There was no yearning, but I'd found this person and I wanted some answers. And this person was not interested. It's a kind of double rejection. Not that I 
essentially being adopted by my family was the best thing that could ever happen to me. So the rejection by birth mother was absolute blessing for me. But the rejection having made this connection and her clearly knowing who the person referred to in Maggie's letter was, but not wanting to go any further, was both intriguing as well as difficult to take. Because it was never a yearning, I thought, okay, she doesn't want it. I won't push it, and I didn't push it, except Maggie said, let me try again. Let me just write another letter. And said, okay. And Maggie wrote another letter, hugely articulate, wonderful letter, which I'll just summarize by saying, you know, this person doesn't want anything from you, which I didn't, by the way, of course, just wants to meet, perhaps see a few photos and understand a bit of bit of background again all heavily coded of course in case family pick up this letter from the from the doormat and that letter went off and then a couple of weeks later another call from maggie to say she's happy to meet you she will meet you and uh wow so we arranged a meeting in a hotel on the outskirts of leeds very very remote place at both her request and my request and i went to this hotel um, it's just the two of us there and unlike I don't know if uh, you get them in the US there's a couple of TV shows over here with very emotional reunion following people in my position um, into situations like this which is hugely emotional tearful and big hugs it was just a hello hello you know nice to meet you looking at each other intently and um it was just very odd. I wouldn't describe it as frosty. It was just, she was clearly doing the meeting for me rather than for herself. She said, I've got some photos for you. And I went through some photos and there was some, you know, one or two faces I could see resemblance to uh, certainly my son. I remember seeing one face. My son was was very young at the time, but one of the faces thought, gosh, that. So these were seen faces for the first time of my blood relatives, because, of course, my kids were the first blood relatives I've, I'd ever known, and uh, made the bond between me and them doubly strong, of course, for me. So the pictures were interesting. She was clearly a very beautiful girl, because there were pictures of her when she was 16, 17. And we had a meeting. She pointedly wouldn't answer my question, can you tell me anything about my birth father? She said, no, I can't. And I didn't push it. And I'll come back to why I didn't push it. But I didn't push it because it was the first meeting. I didn't feel it was appropriate to do anything contentious. She told me about her kids. She said that her daughter in particular would absolutely adore me if she knew that I existed, but she would never tell her that I existed. She's never spoken to me since I was born. Her father handled all the adoption. Her mother... Uh, from memory, took it all very badly because, you know, as a 17-year-old in 1969, this is a scandal. And uh, I think she was, you know, rushed away out of the, the close community I spoke about earlier while she was pregnant to have me in, you know, in secret. So she essentially said, I'll never speak of you. Here are some pictures, which she took away, she didn't give to me. And nice to meet you. And um, it was kind of an underwhelming meeting, but it was a one of the jigsaw pieces had been found. And that was really important to me. It completely discarded and was in complete opposite to the emotional bond that I talked about in Miss Saigon, you know, deep love. You know, there was no, there was, you know, it was a bit, uh, a bit, oh God, was that it then? There was, so there was nothing like that. But that, that kind of helped me in a way. 
it toughened me up. It got me over any thoughts of rejection because, frankly, I was, for want of a better word, quite unimpressed by the meeting and thought how lucky I was to be who I am and being brought up who I was. When you walked into the hotel, describe the the sort of the environment. Was it were there a lot of people in there? Was it just her? When you find when you saw her and you said hello, hello, like did you immediate like because the the bond between a mother and son, whether it's from day one throughout your whole life or much later in a relatively unique, bizarre encounter like you're describing right now, did you immediately know? Like talk about seeing her for the first time and just that wave that probably hit you. So I'd actually been given a plan of the hotel. Maggie, as intermediary, did such a fantastic forensic forensic job of giving me a a diagram of where to meet in which reception room of this hotel. Uh, So I followed the map and uh, there she was sitting in a chair. She's a striking looking lady. She was sitting down and um, it was just incredible that I was, and I still, uh, as I'm sitting here now, still can't get my head around it. You're meeting as an adult person, the person that carried you and gave birth to you. You know, we all, I would imagine, or you all out there, um, you know, just take it for granted that, you know, when you, you brought up with you, with birth parents, that, you know, you come, you come from this person. But I've never had this feeling of meeting flesh and blood. So it was an incredible experience to meet flesh and blood. But equally, unfortunately, given her clear trauma, which is the correct word, and I'll, again, Later on, I'll, t- t- I'll mention why, because she, she opened up later, a few, some years later as to the trauma of it all. She didn't really want to be there. She wanted to forget about me and my existence and the trauma of her 17-year-old self. And um, she'd very bravely, so despite our not giving me any information about my birth father and being initially not wanting to meet me, it was very easy for me, I think, to have said, well, you know, I won't swear, but go, you know, forget forget you. Um, um, you know, I have no respect for you. I do have respect for her because she overcame her fear of the one, you know, which she which was easy to write, do not contact me again. It wasn't easy to write, okay, I'll meet him. So she did go ahead with it. But there was no love, there was no affection. It was just a very business-like meeting to answer your question. So there was uh, no emotion. And that was it. We struggled through a follow-up coffee in the, in the centre of Leeds some weeks later as a follow-up, which she was kind enough to do. But again, she didn't give anything away. I pushed her again on the identity of birth father. Well, I say pushed her again. I pushed her for the first time. I said, can you not remember? And she said, no, please don't ask me about that. So I didn't. And that was it. And why didn't I push her? Speaking very, very openly, I didn't push her in case it was a dark story that I didn't want to know. And I thought maybe she was maybe she was protecting me by not wanting to say anything. Fortunately, I got an answer to that question later on as well, which we'll come to. But at the time, I thought, you know what? She's not telling me for a reason. It's not for me to push it. And then you might not want to know the answer, Philip. So you let that sink in, probably not very comfortable because, again, outside looking in, it would seem like you've gained a little bit of clarity into the past, but... With that clarity, it's almost now more incomplete. But if I'm you, it's like now you have this little bit of a glimpse and then it's been shut down again. So talk about how it began to open up in other ways. 
I just got on with life. You know, I was busy in my career, happy with my life at home. Life just moved on. And because of the rejection, I don't mean that in a bad way of any, you know, and not giving me any further information. I moved on. I, because the wonders of the internet and Facebook and easy access to people's stories, it was easy to establish uh, her two children, my half siblings, one of which was in Leeds and who coincidentally, again, you know, I often half jokingly think that, uh, in, in a very Truman Show-like way, there's somebody in the background producing or directing everything that happens to me because, you know, shortly after that meeting, I find myself in a uh, behind a line, behind my half-sibling, her son, in a queue, you say, line, at the grocery store, literally three feet away from him, knowing exactly who he was, knowing that he was my half-brother, but also knowing he had no clue that I existed and that his mother had a, had a child before he, you know, his dad was on the scene. But it wasn't for me, I felt, to tap him on the shoulder and still feel, because fast forward to literally last weekend, Michael, I saw him at the, my local gym, and as far as, far as I know, he, uh, and he, where he's a member, and as far as I know, he still doesn't know I exist. But anyway, so I maintained confidences. I respected my birth mother's wish for confidentiality. I thought it wasn't for me to tell her own children something that she doesn't want them to know. There's a debate that I still have as to whether or not that's the case. Should I should I be informing them as their human right? We've got a half-brother. That's one, one to think about. I don't know. So I, cra- I cracked on and uh, forgot about it. And, you know, the next stage, if you're asking me how it developed, was lockdown, the first pandemic lockdown in 2020. So some 18 years later, I got on with life, left her to it, knew that I had, a, knew that I had siblings out there. Also buried the, had buried for all those years, any curiosity about birth father for the reason I've just mentioned, but also because let's face it, you know, if it was an encounter as two 17-year-olds, I'm not sure he he made much of a contribution to my existence, unlike the birth mother who carried me for nine months. So I thought, you know, he's very unlikely to know I exist um, if he's still alive. So no curiosity, but in fact, there was a curiosity, and I was kidding myself. There was the second jigsaw piece that was still there. And uh, I would see these shows on television where people in my position, you know, trace their birth father in the same situation. And I thought, you know what? Life's not a rehearsal. Why don't we find out? I said to myself, and the first lockdown was the first opportunity where working from home between transactional work and, and work, you know, you've got time that you ordinarily might not have in a working day in the office. So I said to myself, I'm old and ugly enough to take it if there's a dark story to get my head around. Why don't I just see what I can do? So I, the recommendation of a very good friend of mine, also from, uh, from your part of the world, Michael Newman from, um, from Dallas, was a lawyer that I met on many travels, I've known for many years. On one of my Texas visits some years ago, he mentioned to me, an organization called, when I told him my story, just to this point that I've just told you, he mentioned, you should put your, your DNA on 23andMe. And I said, what's 23andMe? And he explained to me, because the US, I think it's a US company, it's a genealogy DNA tracing company. And on his advice, I did that. And one or two names from the results 
that came through. You just put a bit of saliva in the test tube, post it off, and it comes back, and you, you're online, and it matches you with literally thousands of people because everyone's related somehow. You know, third, fourth, third, and fourth cousins. There's one or two relatively close DNA relatives in the you know in my area in my part of the world, but I just put those down to being on the maternal side of the family and not answering any questions. So my DNA was out there. I decided to write because I had my birth mother's email address. We never we never kept in touch. Although interestingly, I should say about three or four years after we met, on one of my birthdays, I got a text from her saying "Happy birthday," out the blue. Just one year. That's about three years later. It was bizarre. So she clearly, as someone once said to me, whatever she may say, however much she may not want to see you, she will be thinking of you every day on your birthday. And I just thought, probably not. But then that, that kind of text made me think maybe that person was right. So I wrote to her and said, I haven't troubled you for all these years. I've respected your privacy, your confidentiality. Can you perhaps see it within yourself to maybe think again and give me some information about my birth father and again the first email was you know firstly quite short to the point because the email address i had for her was her work email address please do not contact me at work one line and then uh, so i wrote you know she had a, a home email address and she said philip i think i told you when we met i put this to the back of my mind it's a traumatic moment for me as a young person i can't remember the name other than that it was a, a boy that I met at a party. It was a consensual encounter. I think he was from Scotland, maybe Northern Ireland. So without her knowing it, she'd actually lifted, you know, a part of a cloud, if you like, of the, the dark story had, had gone. It was just two kids, not you know, being kids. So that was great to know. But she clearly was not going to tell me anymore. And frankly, neither myself nor anyone in my close family and friends who I kept who were told about this would believe that someone could carry a child for nine months without knowing the identity. So clearly she was protecting herself and perhaps the person in question. So I engaged a UK-based genealogy tracing company, the kind of company that helps people in my position and works behind the scenes in the TV shows that I mentioned, you know, that trace people that uh, don't know where to go or how to find parents. And these people charged not a small amount of money for a while to dig into my DNA, which was on the platform I mentioned, and said, oh, Philip, we'll find this guy. Uh, don't worry. It's very easy for us. You know, we, we know how to do it. And obviously, I kept paying a retainer every quarter or whatever until it got really too expensive to my 18 months later and they were still drawing blanks. So I thought, you know, I'm going to give up. I don't need to know. It was just another, you know, the last jigsaw piece doesn't matter if it's missing. You know, this person won't know I exist. I'll never find him. And my birth mother is clearly not minded to tell me. And at that point, I got a bit resentful, if I'm honest, that the birth mother cracking on with her life keeping the con with me being loyal to her requests, her having no regard to give me the answer that I needed. That really did great to the extent I did start questioning whether my loyalty was misplaced and whether I should tap this half-brother on the shoulder when I next see him at the gym. But I didn't and still haven't. So I was on the verge of giving up when another sliding doors moment came when uh, the, the, my soccer team that I mentioned earlier, Leeds United, won a football match, which at the time, uh, this is kind of, I suppose, fast forward to 2022, not doing so well for a series of games. Leeds United won a game, and I thought, right, I'm going to buy the Sunday Times, which is a big, thick 
publication every Sunday, obviously, of several supplements and several parts and magazines and real estate bits and holiday bits and a great sports section, which is the go-to of journalism for football, at least for, for many people. So I bought the Sunday Times once. It was just because I never, I don't buy it regularly by any means, to read the Leeds United victory, read about the report. But of course, the Sunday Times comes with a, an inch thick set of supplements, as I mentioned, and one of them was a magazine, the Sunday Times Glossy Magazine. And in that magazine supplement, which I got to probably on the Wednesday after buying it on the Sunday, uh, there was an article in the middle of this magazine about a lady called C.C. Moore, who is out of California and runs a company called the DNA Detectives, or founded a company called the DNA Detectives. And C.C. Moore's organization works with U.S. law enforcement to help crack cold cases using DNA. And it was just a fascinating read. I didn't even think about my own situation. But buried in this article, towards the end, was a paragraph saying that C.C. Moore and her team help adopted people find their parents when, you know, you know through, through DNA. It, thought, it occurred to me, maybe I should write to, to this person. And uh, a couple of days later, I wrote three-line I researched the company, wrote a three-line email saying, read with interest your, your article in the UK, Sunday Times. Wonder if you might help me. My birth mother is unable to tell me about my birth father. Maybe you be, maybe you can. A few days later, I got a reply, and that reply was, Philip, would love to help you. Thanks for getting in touch. And they connected me to their Jewish genealogy expert, because that is a thing, because Jewish genealogy is a little bit more complex, I understand to get to the bottom of. And that's principally because as a culture, there is a, an implied pressure amongst Jewish people to marry another Jewish person. And whilst that that doesn't involve in people marrying into family by any means, it does mean that the DNA kind of seven or eight generations up the tree, there's likely to be some connections. And that leads to complications, I understand. This wonderful lady based out of Canada, who I will, again, not named, but she's a wonderful, wonderfully helpful, incredibly intelligent person. In summary, found my birth father in three working days, having, having had 18 months of no joy with this UK company. She used my DNA, she used Facebook, she used census information, and it was five days later she called me because she was working three days. She's a professor at a university. Send me a text message saying it's one of these two brothers. One of them was 15 at the time. One of them, one of them was 17 at the time. Guess what? They also live five minutes from where I live. And yeah, another falling off the chair moment. I was just heading to dinner with some friends actually when I got the text. So we, my wife and I had dinner without saying anything, just chomping at the bit to get home. I went back to my dad and Judith's house, uh, who had obviously been talking through the whole process. And uh, by which time the lady in Canada had identified, said it's almost 100% a 17-year-old brother because obviously he was the right age at the right time. Your DNA matches. I can see where the connection is. I've made the connection with the uh, two families I needed to make in order to know that it was this person. So the following day, I wrote a letter because he was easy to trace as well. And uh, again, known in the community. And I wrote in a letter, fully transparently saying who I was with all my contact details, telling her as I was, I was adopted, telling him I'd traced my birth mother without naming her. She was unable to tell me who my birth father was. I said, I've engaged a genealogy expert and it's highly likely that you are my birth father. I mean, can you imagine receiving that letter? I sent it what we call over here recorded delivery so that we know, you know, when it was received. 
And again, I was at work. I was at this time. I was I was at nights. Shortly into my time at nights, I got an email to say that the letter had been delivered with this Chuck's signature. What was it like writing the letter? I mean, did you start and stop a bunch of times? Did it just flow? Like, how did you get that out? Because again, that's a pivotal moment in this great story. You're very perceptive, Michael. I have to say, you question. You know, you know what you're asking because that is a fabulous question. Because that letter. I just glossed over. It took me hours to write. <laughs> and I've still got it, as has the birth father, who I'll come on to. It was very carefully crafted. And equally, I had Maggie's message from way back when, 28 years ago, in terms of not wanting anyone else to find this letter, you know, because I didn't know this, this guy's personal situation. So it was crafted carefully, diplomatically, Again, saying who I was, where I'm from, how happy I was, how I don't need or want for anything in life, in case he was worried that I'm going to turn up on his door with a begging bowl. <laughs> uh, just to say, you know, it'd be nice to me if you're so minded. If not, I fully understand. Take your time. All of that kind of good stuff. Um, I got an email within an hour to say, hi, yeah, hi, Philip. Just got your letter. As you imagine, it's shocking to have received it i'm writing this email with a glass of whiskey in my hand so a bit of humor in there please give me some time so of course i was ex- i mean and by time by the way i told that that could be another 15 years you know i didn't know what time meant i said sure take all the time you need because you know as i mentioned this wasn't a yearning this particularly this piece of the jigsaw wasn't as important but it was important for me to know and then another half hour later another email philip let's meet what are you doing tomorrow? I'd love to know what kind of whiskey he was drinking. <laughs> clearly it worked. Yeah. So I said, okay, let's meet and let's meet tomorrow. And we arranged a different hotel on the outskirts of Leeds. I couldn't go to the same one. <laughs> I suggested this hotel at a particular time. And after a sleepless night and Jackie saying, do you want me to come with? I'm saying, no, I can drive myself. It's fine. I'll drive myself. I drove to this hotel. And parts of the car, I saw his car, which I recognized because I knew his number plate, having known where he lived. My wife drove past and saw his car just um, out of curiosity. So he was there, and I somehow managed to put one leg in front of the other, got through the glass sliding doors, and there, literally standing there holding a glass of whiskey, was a guy that looked just like me, smiling with a big grin, already the polar opposite to the first meeting of early 2000s. And we had a hug because it was a welcoming smile. And I said, let me get a whiskey. I don't drink whiskey, but I got a whiskey. (laughs) And we sat down and I said, you know, we just looked at each other. The resemblance is clear. Put it that way. The resemblance is clear. There was no arguments that he was the guy. But I said, before we start, I've never spoken the name of my birth mother Can you tell me who she is? And he told me who she was. And he said more than that. He said, we were a fabulous couple. We were together for 10 months. We were great together. And then one day we were driving in a car and she started, she behaved, started, I just noticed to start, she behaved increasingly erratically and she just disappeared the following day. And he he never saw her again. And he never understood why until he got my letter. The only clue 
which he didn't realise what it meant at the time, was when he went round to her house sometime after this disappearance, knocked on the parents' door, and the mother apparently said, haven't you done enough harm already? And slammed the door in his face. And he never knew why until my letter of uh, February 2022, age 70-something. So since then, Michael, we, he and I have met periodically. A week after, a week, probably days after that, uh, my wife and I met him and his wife. So, Philip, your birth father has given a huge piece, if not all, of, of the second jigsaw puzzle piece we've been talking about. And you know, he's describing having this door slammed in his face saying, haven't you done enough? At the same time, in a much different way than the first encounter with your birth mother, he's willing to open up the kimono and tell you everything. So how are you feeling at this point? More than the contrast, Michael, could not be greater between birth mother and birth father. He was so welcoming, despite the enormous shock that it must have been to him. He was referring to his love for me. He was referring to me as being part of his family and me meeting his extended family and all of his friends as quickly as possible, inviting me to family functions and giving me advance warning of, you know, family functions that he'd like me to go to. It was obviously thrilling to be given such a, a welcome, but I wasn't expecting it. I didn't need it. I wasn't asking for it. I was just wanting the piece of the jigsaw to be in place, which it was. What I hadn't prepared myself for was the love and the belonging and the invitations. And crucially, which is why we're actually sitting here now, because this is such a private story. Um, crucially, I wasn't ready to tell the world, because telling the world this what is a great story meant telling people who I work with, who I dine with, who I socialize with, that didn't know I was adopted because I haven't been bothered to mention it because it's such, A, it's personal, B, my dad's my dad, my family's my family. I've got no reason to say, oh, by the way, to people that I've met over the years, you should know this because no, they shouldn't know this. But this guy, this wonderful person, was so excited. He was using expressions like, but Philip, I've, I've got to tell my friends, I've won the lottery and you're not letting me spend it. I've found a Rolls Royce and you're not giving me the keys. These wonderful, flattering descriptions and explanations of his desire to tell the world and welcome me in. And by the way, it's not just him, his wonderful wife and two kids were equally excited and welcoming, you know, which is Again, just hugely both surprising to me at the time, given what I, given what I was exposed to you know, 15 odd years ago. But I wasn't ready for that. And so how did I feel? I felt very confused. I felt very delighted. I had the closure on both fronts that many, many people in my position have to live without, you know, which I can say now looking from the other side is, is very hard to bear if you really want to know the answers. But I was willing to go along for the journey. You know, the journey just started on meeting him and it was his story as well so who was i to say no you can't say anything and that's where we came to a compromise it was actually my daughter's idea which is a great idea to say okay why don't we have have him around to the house to meet my dad and then because my fear for this this such closed not closed this close community i lived in is because this chap is such a big personality a big character well known in the community friends with many people that i know 
people, he would tell people that he was Philip Goldsborough's birth father. And those people that didn't know my dad would cancel my dad in their minds and, and connect me with this guy. And I'm not much as I am his birth son, if you like. I'm not his son. And my dad's brought me up to be this way. And um, I had every loyalty to dad and uh, didn't want anyone to be cancelling my dad just because they didn't know him, but they know this guy. So we arranged for him to come and meet dad so that at least dad could do you know dad was very emotional obviously uh cried when they met you know cried with joy you know and he's thanking uh even though this chap obviously only played a small part in my creation he was just thrilled to uh be able to thank him for for bringing me into the goldsborough family my dad made him an album of my life because he's a wonderful human being and um you know, the, I've got some pictures of my dad turning the pages and talking my birth father through my formative years, which was a wonderful moment. And we agreed that, you know, my birth father could tell his friends and family the story, but I wouldn't be telling the world because I'm still, you know, I didn't want, as I described it, he could put an aeroplane up in the sky with a banner behind it telling the world. I was still a bit reluctant to do so, but fully respected that he had found a long-lost son, although not long-lost because he didn't know I existed. He'd found a son and he wanted to tell people and flatteringly he was very proud of what I had become, even though, as I say, my dad is the principal and my mum and, and latterly Judith are the principal people responsible for me today. That's when trouble started for me, really, just to bring this story to a conclusion. People started hearing it on the jungle drums of the Leeds community, hearing the story because my birth father was flatteringly so delighted. He was telling his friends and his family and his friends and his family knew my friends and my family. And um, there was occasions where one individual thought it was appropriate to ring my sister-in-law to uh, ask her the question, do you know who Philip's parents are? And my sister-in-law said, yes, David and the late Ruth and now Judith, why? Well, that's not what I'd heard. You know, I had people of that ilk just gossiping. And I had another, I had a friend of mine name both my birth parents. I said, I've heard your, both of your birth parents' names. And I hadn't said a word. And I've certainly not spoken on birth mother's name. And I was mortified that having spent all these years maintaining that close confidentiality and respecting her, whatever her motives might be, that the community had put two and two together. Because, of course, there's people in the community that re remember my birth mother and my birth father being a couple. When my birth father started telling people about me, they put two and two together. So really tough times. And one of my more recent US visits, I uh, wasn't particularly looking forward to coming home, you know, and said as much to my wife, which upset her because I was pretty low. I've got my head around it, having said to a very close friend of mine that I wouldn't be attending his party where many of the people that I knew would, had heard the story would be. I went to that party. Somebody did as he saw me across the room, a, ch a chap kind of beckoned me over with an excited look on his face. And I didn't know this guy, so I knew what was coming. And he said, Phil, I know your dad. And I said, you don't know my dad? Because I knew he didn't know my dad. He knew he'd heard the story who my birth father was. Uh, so I put him right. I said, you don't know my dad, but you've heard this wonderful story. And uh, I'm very happy to say it's a wonderful story, but my dad is my dad. And he was very apologetic. And, you know, but there's, so there's been a lack of sensitivity, um, which I have navigated. 
I have, you know, overcome it, overcome those dark days of people of knowing that the community now knows my biology when my biology has always been something that even with close friends that I've never really mentioned. I have now mentioned it proactively to everybody that's important to me. And as you know, I now tell the story because I've owned the story. I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to find both pieces of the puzzle. I've got closure, arguably not closure on the maternal side where I have two siblings that to my knowledge, still don't know I exist. But I'm, uh, you know, I'm a happy, untroubled, not that I was ever troubled, but I, like I said, I did have those moments wondering who out there combined to produce the person I am. And uh, I now know the answer. Well, Philip, it's evident to me that just even in the short amount of time before hearing this story around the dinner table in London this summer and now having it unfold on the Climb podcast, like I can tell that you're getting more and more comfortable with it, what it means, how it's defined you. And at the same time, it's such an amazing story. And I've got to believe that there are many more chapters to it. So I'll go ahead and ask now that this podcast deserves another one as it continues to unfold, because I just think that there are more chapters in it. and. It's fascinating. It, it's such a perfect example of, of your tenacity and your curiosity and just the way that you went about it really, in my mind, defines what I know about you, which is just a, a wonderful, honest, thoughtful human being. And so one of the things that, that we always end this podcast with is, is a saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then I turn it around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. And so with this incredible dichotomy between your father, David, and your birth father, and now this tight-knit community that you live in, that you're raising children in, use this, this last time on this episode of the podcast to tell them what you want them to know about Philip. What I... Who who are you talking about, Michael? In terms of who who do I want? Who who am I addressing your, that to? Your birth father and your father. Wow. Well, I think they both know me very well already. They, you know, in the short time, obviously, me and my dad, David, we have been through so much together that there is nothing that neither of us doesn't know. And my birth father was around in my house having a cup of tea just yesterday to uh, on my birthday. So, you know, we're getting to know each other very well. They, there's nothing really other than that I am so grateful to my dad, David, for just embracing, and, and Judith, by the way, who I, I must not forget, who has been wonderful throughout this process. I needed the three rocks, my dad, Judith, and most of all, Jackie, who has just been more than a rock in uh, some tough times that we've had to navigate. So it's just nothing but gratitude and love. And I look forward to getting to know to know my birth father and his family better. Um, but, you know, I think um, in terms of nature and nurture, uh, I'm a, you know, it's without doubt for me, you know, from five weeks old, I've been nurtured by David and Ruth and Judith to the person I am today. Nurture is without doubt the predominant um, 
factor in who I am today. But having said that, you know, there's no doubt I resemble my birth father and I understand from people that have been with us. Uh, there's also some mannerisms and uh, some quirks that uh, are certainly nature. So just love, gratitude and uh, the, the continuing the journey together of all getting to know each other going forward and, um, you know, how, how fortunate I am. Well, Philip, this has been an incredible journey. I can't thank you enough for your willingness to come on and share. As I look back on the notes that I took, it it does read very much like a novel with incredible page-turning chapters. And I'm so glad that we were able to capture this story from how you grew up to the parents that adopted you and raised you to the emotion that came over you in hearing the musical Inside Miss Saigon, Maggie helping write the letters, 23andMe, CC Moore, it just keeps going. So again, I'm going to repeat that, that this story has more chapters. I look forward to reconnecting and telling more of them. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. And happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.